Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. We, we record the Zoom so it's a backup in case someone's audio fails. But yeah, you don't have to worry about the camera. Only, only if Liam takes a screenshot of us. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Tuesday, January 11th, for our first episode of the new year, we're talking about what we should expect in California housing in 2022. So we'll be talking about what Governor Gavin Newsom has proposed to do, what the legislature might do, and how various areas across the state are dealing with the continuing fallout as we're soon to enter the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, As always, we have the perfect guest for this episode. Who are we speaking with this fortnight? We're talking with Buffy Wicks, a Democratic Assemblywoman from Oakland, who is the new chairwoman of the Assembly Housing and Community Development Committee, which shapes all housing-related legislation here at the Capitol. So we'll be talking to the Assemblywoman about her priorities for her new role and what she's expecting for 2022. But before we dive into everything, let's get into the most famous segment of California housing podcastry. It is... The avocado of the fortnight, our examination of the most extravagant, zany, outlandish story in all of California housing podcastery. Where is this fortnight's avocado taking us? We are going to Santa Clarita, the suburban bastion of semi-affordability in northern Los Angeles County. It's about 30 miles from downtown. There's about 200,000 people in Santa Clarita, and it's also home to Six Flags. And you will soon hear about how Six Flags is integral to this story. I love Six Flags, and I've been meaning to go there. So I'm glad that we're kind of traveling there for this avocado, and hopefully it'll give me an excuse to go in person. So Manuela, meet Dylan. Dylan is a 33-year-old electrical engineer who has achieved the millennial dream of buying a home with what can only be known as an epic, if not (laughs) extremely disgusting, life hack. So eight years ago, Dylan was interning in an office so close to Six Flags that out of his window he could see, uh, well, the Six Flags. All six uh, of them. (laughs) All six of them. (laughs) Not five. No, all six. And Dylan learned that it cost $150 a year for unlimited year-round access to the theme park, which included parking and, crucially, two meals a day. That's a really great deal. And Dylan took advantage of it. (laughs) For the next six years, Dylan would often eat both lunch and dinner at Six Flags and occasionally ride some coasters as well. This is, goes without saying, gross. Wow. Wow. We learned about Dylan from this article by Quinn Myers in Mel Magazine from a few months ago, and I'll just quote from the article here. When the park is full or if he has a busy day at work, Dylan is forced to settle for something towards the front of the park, like the much-dreaded chicken balls. (laughs) Oh, Um, God. (laughs) I got got so sick of those chicken balls, he says. I'd estimate I got them around 150 times, and at five per meal, that's around 750 balls. I don't know that I could ever eat them again. Oh my God, uh, this is not okay. This is really, really nasty. My mom's actually a nutritionist, so I'm pretty strict about food. 
my friends recently made fun of me for only having popcorn kernels as a snack option when they come <laughs> home. So I looked up the menu, of course, for Six Flags. Ah, uh, yes, the Six Flags menu. Ah, uh, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And they have very few fruits and vegetables. So I'm just really concerned for Dylan. On Dylan's chicken ball diet, he happened to accomplish something amazing. He saved enough money for a down payment on a house in Santa Clarita, also paid off his student loans, and he got married. Since I'm an enterprising housing reporter, I looked into the median home value per Zillow in Santa Clarita, and it's $737,000, so quite a sum. Congratulations, Dylan. So the big question here, Manuela, would you eat chicken balls for six years if it meant you could afford a house? I think you know the answer to this. Uh, No, (laughs) no. (laughs) I will stick to avocado toast for (laughs) the rest of my life. I'll, I'll just stick to renting. I can't just stomach that. And what killed me too about this article is that once he made the down payment, he's still going to Six Flags to eat. Like, he, he didn't stop going. <laughs> but yeah, I thought this was a great avocado. And if it makes it all the way to the end of the year, we're calling it Chicken Ball This is a perfect, I think, transition to the meat oh, of our oh. episode. So, Manuela, what can we expect in housing, non-Chicken Ball-related housing news this year? So, not as exciting, but I do have a couple of things to report from Sacramento. Main one being a new budget proposal from Governor Gavin Newsom which he released yesterday. Now, this is very much subject to change because it's the start in negotiations with the legislature that wraps up in June. And it's only based on revenue projections, and those could change by the summer. And we're dealing with a significant budget surplus. Around a decade ago, there was all this talk about what things were having to be cut out of the budget, including significantly a lot of housing funding. But now it's like how much is going to go to housing and homelessness because there's, what, some $40 billion in surplus that the, that the governor and lawmakers have to play with. Yeah, it's a $286.4 billion budget, 9% bigger than last year's already record spending plan. So on the homelessness front, Newsom and the legislature last year agreed to spend a whopping $12 billion, and the bulk of that money would go toward expanding Project Home Key, which is all about renovating old office buildings and hotels and motels to turn them into housing for people who are currently homeless and boarding care facilities for those who struggle with mental illness or substance use disorder. So this year, he proposed an additional $2 billion while those people wait in limbo, essentially for the housing to be constructed over time. Basically, he's sort of conceding that it's taking a while to build some of the longer-term housing that he had planned for and the legislature had planned for. So in the interim, this is money that would essentially go towards helping to resolve those issues in the short term. Exactly. So none of this is really creating long-term housing, which is an issue that the advocates have raised, but it is going toward what can't be solved in the immediate term and what is going to take years to actually create. And then on the front of housing, there's another $2 billion to mostly spur the development of climate-resilient housing and infrastructure, mostly in downtown areas to prevent sprawl. He's sort of, my understanding, juicing 
some of the existing programs that are there at the state that fund low-income housing or projects that support low-income housing near downtowns or near job centers or near transit and is sort of pitching this as a sort of way to link or unify state's climate goals, which are also very ambitious with its housing challenges. And I was a little bit struck, not just Governor Newsom, previous governors have often put big ticket sort of policy changes in their budgets as part of these negotiations. That doesn't seem to be here now, either in the housing space or in the homelessness space at the moment. So I'm wondering, what are other lawmakers now considering as far as their sort of big ticket bills? One thing that I will say the governor brought up yesterday in unveiling this budget blueprint was on conservatorships. Basically, he is looking to expand the state's ability to put people who are currently homeless and struggling with severe mental health issues and substance use who are sort of unable to look after themselves, make it easier to put them under the state's control. But when asked for specifics, Newsom said that those would come in the future and had no real specifics to offer there. On bills, I asked some of the housing-focused legislators about their 2022 bills, and there's actually nothing big in the works yet. I was told they were focused more on other items like wrapping up last year's bills and the budget. The deadline for new bills to be introduced is mid-February, so we'll hopefully have more to report on that front soon. Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon told my colleague at CalMatters that the housing focus will be on accountability for housing construction targets, as we've discussed in previous episodes, as well as rent relief and homelessness. So a lot of accountability focus is here. We should just probably pause for a second and talk about how big of a change this is from recent years past when literally the first moment anyone can introduce bills, there would be, you know, dozens or more um, housing bills in December. And now we're approaching mid-January and we're not seeing a ton of big ticket items. What also strikes me is that for years, the conversation has been sort of defined at the Capitol by these sort of big zoning measures, changes potentially allowing for more dense housing or transit in different areas of the state. Last year's sort of big bill in this area was a Senate Bill 9, which ended single family home only zoning in most areas across the state. And that took effect January 1st. But we're really not seeing any appetite for that kind of measure coming forward this year so far, right? Yeah, that's right, Liam. But I will be monitoring a few bills that were left over from last year. This is somewhat of a technical way the capital works, but basically in the second year of a two-year session, which is what we're in now, if a bill was delayed in the first year in its original house, so an assembly bill that's still in the assembly or a Senate bill that's still in the Senate, those bills have to clear that first house under the legislative rules typically by the end of the first month. And so what happens is that there are these sort of kind of speedy committee hearings and then potentially floor votes by the end of the month that will kick these to the other house and then they can start debating them again over the summer. And so there's always a few leftover bills. So which ones in housing are you taking a closer look at? So one of those includes a bill by Democratic Assembly member Alex Lee from the Bay Area, which would require that a new owner hold on to a property for at least five years before evicting its tenants in order to prevent corporate landlords from essentially flipping properties and displacing waves of low-income tenants. This is related specifically to the Ellis Act, which is a long-standing law 
that governs how owners of rent-controlled housing could potentially sort of get out of the renting business and then convert those properties to condos or things of that nature. So this would result in amendments to that. But we may know, but you, the public, may know the fate of that bill by the time you hear this. And this is a bill that has come up a number of times in the past unsuccessfully. There was also a series of bills that died unceremoniously last year, mostly related to the construction of affordable housing. One such bill was to create an agency to finance the construction and preservation as well of affordable housing in L.A. That bill could be saved in a last-ditch effort this month, but according to recent reporting by your colleagues at the L.A. Times, that was not the case. At the heart here is this long-standing and unresolved dispute between the powerful construction trades union and affordable housing developers about basically who gets to work on these streamlined projects. That's definitely a conflict to watch this year. The head of the union, Robbie Hunter, announced his retirement last year. And there's also been rumblings. She has disputed about Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon potentially being on an early way out. And so leadership among those two key players in this debate could also determine the fate of any new affordable housing bills this year. And this is like a big issue that's been going on for years. I mean, the union, which, you know, as we've said many times, is sort of the biggest power player in housing issues at the Capitol. And one example of that is that they've essentially held hostage a number of these bills, including some that are sort of directly related to like construction worker wages because, you know, they want some better benefit and training opportunities for their workers. And so this sort of dispute resulted in many bills being held up and passing. And so that definitely is a sort of logjam. Lawmakers have sort of pledged to try to address this here. And a final thing to watch here, Liam, is rental assistance. The state got more than $5 billion last year to help people pay past due rent and have paid out about $1.7 billion. That number may seem low, but it's because the state is only in charge of about $2.6 billion dollars while local jurisdictions are in charge of the other half. But suffice to say, demand is quickly outpacing supply. The state requested another $1.9 billion from the feds to fill an estimated need, but only got about 3% of that in the latest reallocation of funds. And there weren't any dollars dedicated to rent relief in Newsom's budget proposal. What have you been hearing on that front, Liam, in L.A.? The story I did that published at the beginning of the month had a figure of about $635 million being spent already on rental assistance to tenants in the city of L.A., but there's also been big delays in waiting for that money. You know, I spoke with one tenant who was waiting on the state for eight months of back rent, and her landlord had taken her to eviction court in the meantime. And then I also spoke with a landlord who manages about a thousand apartments across Los Angeles, and he's waiting on $1 million in back rent from the state for his tenants. That is a lot of money. In addition to the issues surrounding rental assistance, the big thing I covered in the story that I mentioned was this LA City policy on rent control. As we stated, on the show many times, state law in California prohibits cities from passing rent control laws affecting properties built prior to 1995 
or in the case of some cities like LA that had older rent control rules, even much before then. So LA's rent control policies apply to apartments that are built before October 1978, so a while ago. But perhaps surprisingly, because that's so long ago, we're talking about more than 650,000 apartments citywide. Roughly three quarters of the city's apartment stock is covered under the city's rent control rules. And usually landlords are allowed to increase rent annually 3% or so, depending on inflation. But that's not the case now. Yeah, exactly right. So at the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020, Mayor Eric Garcetti forwarded an emergency order that blocked any rent increases at all, with limited exceptions in rent-controlled apartments. And this was the first time in the policy's more than 40-year history where landlords were not allowed to have any rent increases. But as you point out in your story, Liam, at the beginning of the pandemic, rents in cities like L.A. were free-falling. So it's not like there was going to be huge rent increases then anyway. Now, though, over the past year, there has been a rebound and urban rents are basically back to where they were beforehand. So the ban on rent hikes, I imagine, is having a much stronger real world effect now than it was when it was first instituted. And you see other areas reacting differently to this than the city of L.A. Many had in place a rent increase ban at the beginning of the pandemic. New York City, San Francisco, L.A. County, uh, unincorporated areas, Washington, D.C., But they've now all expired, these bans, or are about to. What makes LA's policy really unique is that it extends for an entire year after the emergency COVID-19 order expires. So that means, as things stand now, most uh, tenants in LA aren't going to face a rent increase until 2023 at the earliest. Wow. And just to clarify, that's specifically LA City, right? Correct. So what's happening in LA now is just one example of how lingering COVID rules are leading to new and totally different situations for housing in 2022, where it's tough to predict how it's going to ultimately affect the lives of owners and renters and even the market as a whole. So at this point, we would typically head right into our our interview, but we thought it made sense to do a kind of a longer intro of Buffy Wicks beforehand. Why don't we sort of start here with a quick bio of her? She was first elected in 2018 to a district that's one of the most progressive and diverse in the state. Buffy lives in Oakland, and the district also includes Berkeley and Richmond. Wicks has a pretty robust political career before running for office. She worked as an organizer on President Obama's 2008 campaign and then was a key staffer that helped pass the Affordable Care Act. She also worked on Hillary's 2016 campaign in California. In the legislature, she's worked on housing issues previously, too. I think familiar to listeners is one bill that made it easier for churches to build affordable housing on their land, specifically their parking lots. The city of San Diego blocking one such proposal a few years ago based on parking requirements that measured square feet of pew space was a previous avocado of the year on this very program. And then Wicks herself was the avocado of the year in 2020 for famously sprinting to the floor of the assembly to testify on behalf of an ill-fated bill ending single-family zoning in the state, sprinting with her newborn baby after her request for remote voting during the pandemic was denied. Buffy's also had an unsuccessful bill to have a registry of rental units across the state, something that advocates say would be helpful in understanding rent increases, evictions, and gathering data that isn't easy to get right now. She's replacing David Chu, an assemblyman from San Francisco, who recently was appointed that city's attorney. We're going to get into this during the interview, but Liam, how much do you think she's going to change 
the dynamic on housing issues. Again, this is important because the chairs of this committee really do shape the housing legislation that's passed. Yeah, so I think in many ways, it's a lot of the same. Like her counterpart in the state Senate, Scott Weiner, Democrat of San Francisco, she's in favor of increasing housing density, increasing housing production, wants to promote both low-income and market-rate housing. So she was a strong supporter of the bills to end single-family home-only zoning. She supported Wiener's aggressive failed Senate Bill 50 a few years ago, which would have allowed mid-rise apartments near transit around the state. She's also run some pro-tenant bills, like the aforementioned rental registry bill. Prior to this assignment, she was chair of a uh, small select committee to promote social and public housing. But to me, one of the more interesting things is just simply the fact that she's from the Bay Area. Why is that? Well, for the entire news administration now, housing policy at the state has been shaped primarily by Northern California lawmakers. Chu and Wiener are from San Francisco, and obviously Newsom is too. So housing policy really does have a sort of this Northern California-centric view. And you can see some of those divides on high-profile bills. Going back to SB 50, LA lawmakers were the ones who killed the final iteration of it. Out of 11 state senators from the LA area, 10 voted no or abstained in 2020 on the final decisive vote. So I was sort of curious that the assembly decided to go with another Bay Area lawmaker for this role rather than someone from Southern California. No, that's a great point and definitely a divide that came out during the most recent debate over zoning bills last year. So let's ask Buffy what she thinks about that divide. We are here with Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, a Democrat from Oakland who is the new chair of the Assembly Committee on Housing and Community Development. Buffy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me yet again. Appreciate it. Why don't you sort of give us a summary what you expect your priorities in housing to be this year and sort of how you plan to wield your new power and authority? You know, we just did a big housing tour in the fall across the state. I think there was like almost 30 of my colleagues that participated in that. We went from Concord to Oakland to Salinas to Inland Empire, Fresno, Orange County, Los Angeles, San Diego, all over the state, really trying to get a better sense of what are the needs and are they different in different communities? Are they similar? And I think some of the main things that we found that I plan on working on along with some of my colleagues, one, there was a constant drumbeat of a need for a dedicated, continued, long-term funding source for affordable housing. And maybe it's not sort of indefinite funding, but at least a significant amount of time of consistent ongoing funding, I think, is critical. And I would put that more kind of on the sort of the production side of things, like we've got to build that housing, we've got to get it up and going now. Our communities all need it. I live in Oakland, and I've done a lot of the tours of the cabin communities here, and the city works really hard to get folks out of the encampments into those communities. And then unfortunately, because of the continued cost of housing, those encampments get filled up again. The other thing that came up a lot in the tour, and again, we're really letting that drive a lot of the conversation right now, is homeownership. California has one of the lowest rates of homeownership in the country. And really, in America, that's how you build wealth. And for right now, too many families, that's just out of reach, and particularly families of color. Really, that kind of like missing middle housing is, I think, critical, where families who don't qualify for subsidized housing but can't really afford market rate either, is there down payment assistance? Are there other things? When you talk to developers, there's concerns around the construction defect liability. So is that something that could be worked on with, could the state take more of a role? So we're kind of exploring that issue as well, 
of just thinking how we can sort of onboard more ability for people to actually buy homes they can then have housing security with. So those are some of the things that we're looking at. And then, you know, there's other things like some potential Fortune 82 cleanup that might need to be done. I'm sure you're following Alex Lee's bringing forth Ellis Act reform. So that's going to be coming down the pipeline. So there's still a lot of other things that are in the mix as well. But those are some of the the bigger ideas we're looking at right now. You mentioned a series of funding priorities there. Was there anything that you noticed was missing perhaps in the governor's budget that you'd like to work on in negotiations come the summer? I think there was a lot of really important pieces to the budget that he outlined. And I applaud him for that. But I also want to figure out the long-term piece of it. And how do we then put forth the resources to address that in a long-term solution? Because we could get another governor who has a different idea. How do we have kind of ongoing funding that we know is going to be there? And to me, that's the tough issue. Because then what does that mean? Does that mean general budget funds or not? And if that does, then what are the trade-offs? So those are really big political questions that need to be addressed. But I do think there is a real need Our cities and counties need it. Our communities need it. The folks living on the streets need it. We have to really push on this this issue of the long-term permanent funding. One bill that you've introduced several times, I think, in the past, had to do with the rental registry. Oh, the rental registry. (laughs) And so, yeah, we were wondering, you know, what's the deal with that? Is that making a comeback this year? Yeah, I'm going to introduce the rental registry again, the fourth Time's a charm. So we'll see if I can pull it off this time. But I think you look at what has happened with the relief funds federally. I think we would have done a better job of implementing that program had we had a rental registry. You would have known uh, incomes are most at risk or things of that nature, right? Yeah. And we would just would have be able to communicate with people better about the program's availability. And so I think in a, in a strange way, the idea may be more popular now. There are proprietary databases that you can purchase, like apartments.com. There's these back-end data managing companies who have pretty good access to rental registry data, but it's not available to journalists. It's not available to policymakers. It's subscription-based, so it's incredibly expensive. One of the ideas was, oh, well, why don't you just use that? And it's like, what is it, $50,000 a month to subscribe to that? Like, that's not going to happen. And if you look at, like, homeownership, you can put in any address and find out when it was purchased, how much it was purchased for, what the potential current market rate is on it, how many bedrooms it is, what's the square footage, what's the square footage of the lot. There's a ton of information you can get publicly available for homes that are purchased, not for the rental market. And so if I, as a policymaker, I'm trying to create policies to help protect renters who tend to be more vulnerable to housing insecurity, and yet we don't have the data for it, it just seems like if we want evidence-based policymaking, we should have more data on it. So one thing that struck me a lot when I was based in Sacramento and writing about housing issues was the dominance in terms of the political power structure, the housing level of lawmakers and people in charge, if you will, from the Bay Area. Governor, obviously, being from San Francisco, your predecessor from San Francisco, the Senate housing chair from San Francisco. And I think you saw that divide most explicitly during the debate over Senate Bill 50, a lot of reluctance predominantly from lawmakers in LA. And a lot of the conversations were around, well, the people in the Bay Area, Northern California don't understand what it's like here. And so I guess maybe an overly hostile way of framing this question. Give it to me, Liam. Give me a hostile question. I'm on the hot seat. Right. So make the case for why we should continue to have leadership at kind of all levels here and shaping these policies from the Bay Area. Well, let's not forget the Speaker and the Senate pro tem are from Southern California, and they matter a lot. And also, Ikaria, who chairs Budget Sub 4, is from Los Angeles as well. But I hear the point. And I think it's important that 
our chairs and our lawmakers listening to people from all different parts of the state, which is why I was very intentional about going to a lot of the different stops on the housing tour. And I went to all but one of the Southern California stops. But I think the bigger question, though, is how do we ensure that when we are passing housing legislation, where the politics might be different in different parts of the state, that we're bringing everyone along? And I think a lot of that is being really intentional about working with my colleagues from other parts of the state. You know, and I specifically asked to add some more Southern California members to the housing committee. I asked for Wendy Creo to be on the committee, as well as Chris Ward. I think having Southern California folks on the committee is really super important. My hope is that some of the stuff that we'll work on will maybe be sort of less regionally controversial, but it's going to take a lot of intentionality, a lot of conversations. I've already told colleagues I would be willing to go to their communities and listen to folks that have different types of opinions on this stuff. And I think the most important thing is for me as a chair is someone who you know, I always have an open door, whether we agree or disagree. I want to ask you a question on the building trades and affordable housing development. That tension ended up killing quite a few bills in the last session. And I'm wondering, where are those negotiations now? And what do you expect to happen in this coming session around that tension? Well, as my old boss used to say there's more that unites us than divides us. I've had a lot of conversations with the state trades as well as my local trades. Listen, like there's no group of people that builds homes better than the building trades. These are like highly trained, well-qualified people. We have a big need to build a lot of homes. So we have a great workforce. We have a big need. We have to find a way to fix this problem. And I'm very committed to it. And I think it means sitting down with them, sitting down with the affordable housing developers and figuring out what that potential solution is. And I'm hopeful that we can. We've got this sort of serendipity of sort of new leadership in the housing committee, new leadership in the building trades. And then I think a lot of our nonprofit affordable housing developers really just want to build housing. That is truly what they want to do. And they have to work with limited amounts of resources. But I say this all by way of saying, I do think there's going to be a path there. It's just figuring out the best way to do it. And I'm very committed to helping try to be part of the solution. Policy-wise, what do you think that might look like? What do you think would be a good way for both parties to get a bit of what they want? I think there's sort of enough to go around. And so I think those are the things we're going to have to dive into is what are the specific pieces of things that's going to be really important to the trades that are sort of non-negotiables and what are the sort of non-negotiables for the affordable housing developers and how do we bring those two pieces together? So we're in active conversations trying to figure out what that will look like. You know, when you were talking at the top about your priorities for the year, you didn't talk much about sort of further zoning changes or changes that would address sort of local control and things of that nature. The subject of the most high profile debates at the Capitol for many, many years now with the passage of SB9 in particular, is that over? I don't think it's over. Obviously, Senator Weiner, Scott Weiner has done a lot of work in this space. The Senate pro tem has done a lot of work in this space as well. I've done some of these kind of zoning reform bills building off of Scott's work on SB 35. So I don't think it's over. You know, obviously SB 9 was, I think, a big lift for a lot of people when in in my opinion, in reality, it's, I don't think going to be this sort of like revolutionary solve our housing crisis law overnight, but politically it was a big lift for people. I think there's going to be a continued need for that. I use the example of like Rockridge College Avenue, Rockridge BART, 
And the fact that you have one story buildings on College Avenue, which is a classic example of something that should include four or five, six stories on that commercial drag across from a BART. So I still think we're going to have a need for more transit-oriented streamlining type legislation. And obviously, Scott's been such a leader in that space. And I'm not sure if he's planning on bringing back SB 50 this year or not. But that type of stuff, I think, will continue to be important. And obviously, I'll be a big supporter of that type of policymaking. Along those lines, there is growing momentum on this ballot to undo SB 9 and some of these other zoning changes and assert more local control over land use. Are you concerned about this and that it could undo some of the housing work you all have done in recent years? And what's the plan around that? I'm obviously opposed to it. This sort of like local versus state question came up quite a bit in the housing tour stops, but I am concerned about it. My hope is that it doesn't make it onto the ballot. We'll see. But if it does, I think we need to fight it at every turn. I heard this at the LA meeting of like, okay, the locals got it. We've got it under control. But then you look at the housing crisis and you look at the homelessness crisis and it's like, no, actually what we've seen in many places, not everywhere, but in many places, a lot of resistance to building homes. And so we do have a need for more state intervention, more state kind of carrots and sticks and more state engagement because we have such an increase in homelessness, the cost of living, all of the things that we know exist. And so part of that is the streamlining, is more affordable housing, is more production, which we need to do. I stand ready to work against that ballot measure if it makes it onto the ballot. You talked a lot already about the need for additional funding for the production of low-income housing, but the one big challenge for that is sort of no matter how much money you have, right now the cost to build low-income housing in California is by far the highest in the country, and some of that, of course, is attributable to land costs and material costs. We did a story the LA Times two years ago now that talked about a lot of these costs are very much under the control of policy, and in particular, sort of very fragmented way that affordable housing funding gets doled out in California, much, much more diffuse and much more costly than in many other states. So I'm wondering, do you have any plans or ideas for how to address those challenges? Makes me think of two things. One, you know, Tim Grayson's done quite a bit of work in the space to try to streamline the sort of access of affordable housing funds. I don't know if he's bringing forth that legislation again, but I think that's something that certainly needs to be taken a look at. And then the other thing is thinking through and ensuring housing related infrastructure gets paid for these impact fees can get paid for through the infrastructure funding because we are going to get a bunch of federal funding. And is there a way to offset some of those fees? So right now, affordable housing funding is handed out both by agencies controlled by the state treasurer and also by the governor. Do you think that there should be two separate statewide elected officials in charge of that money? <laughs> if there's one thing we've learned in the past two years, it's the importance of well-run government. <laughs> you know, any Anything we can do to kind of streamline the process we should be doing, making it easier for folks to access those resources. And I would support anything towards that end. So is that a yes or is that a no? Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how it would take shape, but I've heard this issue come up quite a bit. I mean, it's obvious that there's sort of a need for solution. I'm just unsure if Grayson's going to be working on it again this year or not. But um, I supported his bill when it came through last time when I was on housing committee and would continue to do so. And I do think it's an important piece of the solution. I have a question on rental assistance. We've heard from tenants and landlords about significant delays continuing to be an issue with this program. The dashboard shows that money's running out. And in the most recent announcement from the feds, the amount that the state asked for is not coming through. As community chair, what are your plans on rent relief? I think we have to keep people housed. 
that is like non-negotiable. We didn't obviously get as much federal funds that we asked for. So thinking through how we could come up with either some of those funds or some other mechanism is going to be important. We haven't seen the significant evictions that I think we thought, in part because of the work that we did as a legislature to ensure that that didn't happen. And so I think we're going to have to go back to the drawing board towards the same vein to ensure that we don't have, again, an eviction sort of cliff headed our way. I noticed that there wasn't any money for rent relief in the governor's budget proposal. It's Um, something the legislature is certainly looking at. Got it. And on the question of delays, are you hearing anything from constituents that is any type of concerning for distribution? Ensuring the government works for people, I think, is critical. And I think we have some lessons learned from that. And honestly, had we had a rental registry, we would have had a much easier way to communicate with people about these types of funds. It certainly could have been implemented better, though it has helped quite a few people. So in that sense, the cliff wasn't as bad as I think we thought it could be, but we can certainly run the program better. Are there any like hearings or bills in the works to ensure that? In terms of like programmatic functioning of the program, I haven't seen bills yet towards that end yet, but we're still early in the bill process. So I know that a lot of my colleagues are still kind of formulating what their bill package is going to look like. Along the lines of that, like rental registry and, and, and also just eviction protections in general, why is it so hard to pass these tenant protection bills? I think part of it is the apartment association and the realtors have pretty robust lobbying efforts. Those are organizations I work with on bills sometimes on some of my housing production bills and then against on some of my tenant type bills. And they carry a lot of weight. I think a lot of my colleagues have really good relationships with their local realtors in particular and are engaging with them on policy pretty regularly. The tenant bills I think are hard also because I think in America we have this sort of home ownership and property ownership is such a kind of core tenant to who we are as a country, that the idea that the government could regulate that in any way, shape or form, I think for a lot of people, they have like a visceral reaction to that. And then also you do have people who your sort of mom and pops landlords make a decent amount, not a crazy amount, but a decent amount of living. When you talk about regulation for them, the reaction is it's their livelihood we're talking about. And then the other thing I'll say is we have a massive homelessness crisis. That's a moral imperative that we fix that problem. And so what that's going to mean is that we have tough conversations around tenant protections, funding for legal representation for those getting evicted, things like that. The landlords don't love that, but that type of stuff is really important to keep people in their homes. Preventing homelessness before it starts is absolutely critical, but it does mean that these different sides will duke it out on the floor of the assembly. But I think in the end of the day, change is hard, but it's important. So Buffy, we reached the most fun part of this interview where we're going to do a lightning round. Oh, no. Yes. yes. (laughs) Everybody's favorite part, uh, except for the person that we're interviewing. Um, So (laughs) here are the rules for our lightning round. We are going to give a phrase or a word. And you are to respond with good or bad. And oh, gosh. It's better than true or false. It's better than true or false. But as a gift, then if you say good or bad, we'll be allowed to provide any caveat or any other sort of explanation following okay. that, that good or bad answer. So first, rent control, good or bad? So as you may recall, I didn't support Prop 10, the repeal of Costa-Hawkins, because I had significant concern about, in talking to affordable housing developers, that if cities put forth very strict rent control measures, that it would slow down the production of housing. And so 
looking at all things being equal, didn't think that we should have passed that. And obviously the voters agreed, but that was a pretty controversial position for me to take in my race, especially someone who represents like Berkeley and Oakland and Richmond area, right? Cities that all have rent control. Having said all of that, I do think rent control can be an important safety net for people. And we've seen it. We know that in certain places with skyrocketing rent, it's kept families in their homes. And so I think that that has been like a critically important tool. But I also get some of the challenges that are there, again, which is why I didn't support that bill. So I guess all things being equal, rent control good. Okay. Pass the first test. Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Next one, CEQA, good or bad? So I think the original intent of CEQA is great. And I think the need to make sure that we are looking at the environmental impacts of development is a thousand percent important. And I stand by that. I do think we need some sort of sequel reform. So I would say, again, all things being equal, good, but I do think we need reforms. Proposition 13. Ugh, bad. <laughs> I think that's been one of the worst things for the state. That I don't have a lot of nuances to that. I think you can do reforms in a way that are thoughtful of some of the people that could be negatively impacted by Prop 13 reform, but I think we absolutely have to reform Prop 13. Single family zoning bad, more or less. You know, the underpinnings are pretty racist. It's been pretty exclusionary. I think we need multifamily housing across the board. Was thrilled to support SB9, SB50, all of those types of bills. I think it's important that we continue to do those types of reforms. Building market rate housing and gentrifying neighborhoods. I think we need housing at all income levels, like low-income subsidized housing, middle-income market rate across the board. The add-on to gentrifying neighborhoods, where I pause a little bit, because I think how you do that is really important so that we're not pushing folks out of their community. We'll take a little detour. What would you like to see for those sorts of concerns? I think, you know, if you have low-income folks living in communities that you continue to be mindful that they should share in the new wealth that you're bringing in when you build more housing. So preserving some of the housing, ensuring that there's low-income housing in those areas, ensuring that you're sort of redeveloping a part of a community that those that are living there have the ability to access those resources. We're going to ask you to finish this phrase with a housing-related answer. Okay. Okay. So Buffy the blank slayer. (laughs) That is funny because for the past 20 plus years, that phrase has fit in every professional context that I've had. (laughs) Yes, we were discussing that prior. That's probably the case. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess Buffy the homelessness slayer. Or I could say Buffy the housing crisis slayer, but that's two words. <laughs> so, I mean, should we expect some sort of costume or like how is this, uh, <laughs> this going to play out now that we've just... solved, this, solved this problem? How are we going to like see this play out in you've, the real world? You've yeah. just given me my Halloween costume for next year. <laughs> <laughs> I'll dress up as like affordable housing funds. How does that work? <laughs> Anything that we've missed or anything that you want to make sure that you impart to our uh, very vast and influential audience? I think that's probably it. One thing that you just brought up, just wanted to ask about was on homelessness. You had mentioned at the beginning that accountability would be a big issue. And there was recently the Republicans called for sort of an emergency hearing on this. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are if you could get a little more detailed on like what accountability is going to look like this year. I think anytime you're spending billions of dollars of taxpayer funds, we need to make sure that we're doing it the right way. And so I think we're looking at what that could look like, particularly if we do have some sort of ongoing funding as a piece of that. I saw obviously the Republicans are, are calling for that. I don't know if that's 
an altruistic endeavor or a political one. I think time will tell and we'll see. But having said all of that, we should be asking those questions on any types of funding that we have. Ultimately, taxpayers want to see that as we spend these resources, they're being put to good use, that we are solving the problem that is put before us and we're doing so in an effective and efficient way. And so, you know, I think the funds that are coming out of the 12 billion last year, it's going to take a little while to get all those funds distributed. And so I think with that, working with Budget Sub 4 and others, we'll look and see what those accountability measures will be. Well, thank you so much, Buffy, for being on uh, the podcast. It's been great having you and learning a little bit more about what to expect in this coming legislative year. Thank you, Buffy. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we do, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcast and your other favorite podcast service. This is important so that new people can become Gimme Shelter devotees. Our editor, as always, is the great Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you. I am Liam, and I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and you can find me on Twitter at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>